0: This Parsha podcast is sponsored in honor of David and Suzanne Gelb by their loving children, and we thank them for the support of Torch. Before we begin, I'd like to give a quick update on the mitzvah magnets, the project that we spoke about last week, the Torch Shabbat light switch covers. The response has been incredibly enthusiastic. We've already sent out hundreds of the Shabbat light switch covers, To all over the world, get yours before it's too late. The landing page at torchweb.org forward slash Shabbat is not yet up. However, on the homepage, torchweb.org, there is a banner where you can click and submit your orders. And like we said last week, we'll send you free of charge a torch Shabbat light switch cover to your home so that you can partake in this amazing initiative. So Parsha's Vayera, this week's Parsha, of course, centers around the character of Abraham. And there's amazing stories from the beginning of the Parsha to its end. It starts off with Abraham right on the heels of his circumcision. He has a visitation by God, yet he sees the three travelers. We find out later on that these are actually angels masquerading as travelers. And he tells God, wait one second, I have to go feed these wary pagan travelers and he feeds them and then the narrative moves on to Abraham's intercession on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. God tells Abraham that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas are going to be destroyed and Abraham launches a very detailed and almost repetitive plea beseeching God on behalf of those cities and their inhabitants, ultimately that fails and that cities, those cities are destroyed with the exception of Lot, Lot, Abraham's brother-in-law slash nephew who is saved. And towards the end of the parsha, we read about the birth of Isaac. Abraham has to banish Ishmael and the final chapter of the parsha details the description of the story of the binding of Isaac. Abraham is told by God, take your son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. And the end of that story is that ultimately, Isaac is not offered as a sacrifice. Now, I think we have all these amazing stories, but if you analyze them, you'll notice that all of them apparently result in failure. It's a series of failures, one after another. So Abraham starts the Parsha trying to feed guests, and he's running from thing to thing to try to feed the guests, and it turns out that they're angels who don't need food, and thus his efforts were for naught. His efforts were futile. The next story is that Abraham tries valiantly to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but the Almighty overturns the city nonetheless. Abraham's efforts apparently were in vain, were unsuccessful. Uh, Additionally, we find that Abraham tries to find safety and sustenance. He travels to Gerar and his wife is taken by the local ruler. He tries to raise his son Ishmael well. He has to banish him. He tries to sacrifice his son Isaac to do this amazing mitzvah. And God tells him, not only will I not allow you to kill Isaac, you cannot even make a small incision. You cannot make any blemish in Isaac. So again, Abraham tries to do something and he fails. So isn't it interesting that the whole Parsha, which is lauding Abraham's greatness, seems to be a description of nothing but Abraham's failure. So I think there's a few ways to look at this theme of the Parsha. I think one very valid explanation, understanding for the, of this phenomenon is that in our Weltanschauung, in our worldview, our perspective is that our job is to focus on the effort, to focus on the input. The results – That's in the hands of God. And Abraham, we see he's trying to do good. He's trying to do the will of God. He's trying to do kindness. He's trying to save, to intercede on behalf of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's trying to offer a son as a sacrifice. And even though these efforts fail, doesn't matter. Abraham's still very great. We can appropriately laud Abraham's character and Abraham's behavior because it's not the results that matter, but the effort. And in fact, there's many sources in Jewish literature to this effect. For example, the Talmud, the book of Kiddushin, tells us that if you try to do a mitzvah, but you cannot complete that mitzvah due to matters beyond your control, it is considered by God as if you fulfill the mitzvah. Again, your responsibility is not to focus on the outcome, but on the input, on the effort, the outcome is in God's hand. If, for whatever reason, you were unsuccessful at effectuating the outcome, it doesn't matter. It's still great because you tried. Similarly, the Mishnah tells us, Lo Allaham Allah it's not your job to finish the job, but conversely, you are not free to shirk your responsibilities. You cannot say, I'm not going to try. Your job is to try. But ultimately, the result, the conclusion, the outcome. That is not in our hands. That's in God's hand. That's a very valid way to understand this theme, the Parsha, that Abraham is focusing on the effort, on the input. He's trying, and that's why he's so great, and that's why these stories are salient. Ultimately, the results are in the hands of God, and the results really don't matter. Abraham can be justifiably praised for his efforts. That's one theme that we can offer to understand this phenomenon of of our Parsha. I want to suggest maybe a different way of looking at these stories. I want to suggest that although it seems on the surface that in each one of these stories, in each one of these anecdotes or episodes of the Parsha, Abraham failed, that's the way it seems. In truth, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that they were not only successful, they were monumentally successful successful. So let's go through the stories one by one. The first episode is the story of the feeding of the angels. Abraham thinks that they're wary pagan travelers, and he tries to feed them, and apparently we find out later on there were angels, and therefore his efforts were for naught. Not so, says the Talmud in the Book of Vav page 86b. The Talmud tells us that everything That Abraham did for the angels, God himself did for Abraham's children. And it gives us four examples. The verse tells us that Abraham ran to the livestock. So Abraham's providing the meat for the angels. Similarly, during the duration of the 40 years the Jewish people are sojourning in the wilderness, God is going to provide meat for the Jewish people in the form of the quail. The fact that the Jewish people are eating quail for 40 years, that is all due to Abraham's feeding of the angels. Similarly, Abraham is running to go take the milk and the butter, says the Talmud. As a result of that, God showers the nation with manna, with bread from heaven. Again, Abraham's efforts are yielding a tremendous result. Abraham is standing over them as they are eating. Abraham is making sure that the people are being tended to, or the people that he thinks are people, ultimately they're angels, we find out. But he's actually tending to them, tending to their needs, being a very gracious and helpful host. Similarly, the first time when the Jewish people are left without water And Moses is told appropriately to hit the rock. Of course, there's an episode later on in the book of Numbers where Moses is told to speak to the rock. Instead, he hits the rock and that one ends up poorly. But the first time in Exodus chapter 17, the Jewish people are left without water. Moses is told to hit the rock and God is with him just like Abraham was with the apparently weary travelers. And finally, the Talmud tells us that Abraham accompanied them When they left, he walked them out and accompanied them along their journey. Similarly, God accompanied the Jewish people. And for 40 years, the Jewish people are in the wilderness and they're always surrounded by God. By day, of course, they're enveloped by the clouds of glory. And at night, they're led by a pillar of fire. So again, the Talmud's telling us that while on the surface, when we read the story, it seems like Abraham's efforts are for naught – Ultimately, his descendants, millions of his descendants for tens of years, for 40 years in the wilderness, they're going to be spiritually nourished, so to speak, by the deeds of Abraham. These actions were actually quite successful. In addition, the Midrash tells us, and this is a long Midrash that records three times that the angels protested the actions of God. God did three different things. And each time, the angels protested. Number one, God created man. Angels said that's a terrible idea. Number two, God gave man Torah. Angels thought that was a terrible idea. And finally, God dwelled in the tabernacle amongst humanity. And for a third time, the angels protested and they objected to God dwelling in the tabernacle. In the Midrash, this is the Midrash in Tehillim and Psalms. In chapter 8, the Midrash gives us a very long, very fascinating dialogue as to the back and forth between God and the angels at these three distinct times when God created man, when God gave man Torah, and when God dwelled in the tabernacle. And it tells us that when God gave Torah to the Jewish people, the angels protested and they said... You shouldn't give the Torah to mankind. You should give the Torah to us. After all, the Torah is holy and we're holy. The Torah is pure and we're pure. The Torah is life and we have eternal life. As opposed to humanity, they're not so pure, they're not so holy. And you know what? They don't really live. They have death. They have things that happen to them that seem to fly in the face of Torah and the Midrash gives the various responses or the various opinions as to the response of God to this claim of the angels. So, for example, the Midrash tells us that God gave them the following answer in the form of a parable. There was a man who had a son, and the son, tragically, was missing a finger, And the father sent the son to go learn a trade. But unfortunately, he chose a trade that you need All the fingers for. And after some time, the father comes to inspect the progress of his child. And it turns out the child was not able to learn that trade, that craft. So he goes to the craftsman who he hired to teach his son, to teach his child this craft. He says, I I paid you to teach my son the craft and you didn't do a good job. So the craftsman responded – Well, this particular craft, this particular trade, you need to have all your fingers. And your son, sadly, is missing some fingers and therefore he's incapable of learning this craft. Similarly, God tells the angels, you, the angels, you're like that child who's missing some fingers. The craft of the Torah is not for you. Why? Because you don't procreate. You don't die. You don't become impure. You don't get sick. You're just holy. And he starts listing verses in the Torah that apply only to people that die, that have sicknesses, that have the potential of becoming not holy, that can procreate. And he lists verses throughout the Torah that talk about these life cycle events that are uniquely human in nature. And therefore, he proves, so to speak, the Torah cannot be given to the angels. The Torah has to be given to People. And incidentally, we find out that our humanity, the fact that we are flawed, the fact that we can become impure, we think that, you know, that's a liability. Turns out it's an asset. The angels, they're the ones who are lacking the finger, so to speak. They're the ones who have the blemish Due to the fact that they cannot become blemished, due to the fact that they cannot become impure, therefore they're blemished vis-a-vis Torah. Torah is a craft that's specifically tailored for the imperfect to take someone who is a human, who is fallible, who has urges that are contra to Torah, who has the capacity of becoming impure, and it's there to elevate him and to bring him up and to transform him. And to metamorphize him into something which is greater, that's actually a feature, not a bug. So, of course, as a result of this dialogue, God gave the Torah to the Jewish people via Moses. Moses goes down from heaven. And as, of course, at the bottom of the mountain, he sees the Jewish people doing the sin of the golden calf. And, of course, he shatters the tablets. And at that time... The angels, says the Midrash, they're all happy. They're snickering. They'll say, aha, the Jewish people got the Torah for 40 days. They couldn't even keep it. And now what's naturally going to happen? The Almighty will come around and he'll give the Torah back to us. And God, of course, calls Moses up to the mountain a second time to give him the second set of tablets. And the angels, they say, wait a minute. Doesn't it say in the first set of tablets, didn't didn't you tell the Jewish people In the Ten Commandments, not to have another god, not to have a foreign god. Didn't they do the golden calf? Shouldn't the Torah be revoked from the Jewish people? Shouldn't they lose the tremendous treasure of Torah? So God responded. And I mentioned this in the previous podcast. God responded. Oh, you want to suggest again that the Torah should not be given to man because after all, man – Man sins. Man disobeys the Torah. But it should be given to the angels? Are you so perfect, says God? You're not so perfect. Remember the episode of Abraham when you angels were sent down to masquerade as people. What did you eat? The verse is clear. You ate milk and butter and beef. And we know, of course, in the Torah that combination is a toxic combination that we cannot eat. And in fact, compare that to to a small child, a small Jewish child. He comes home, this is all in the Midrash by the way, he comes home and his mother gives him some bread and some meat and some cheese. And invariably the child will tell his mother, no, today I learned in school that the verse tells us that we cannot mix milk and meat. And the Almighty is in effect telling the angels that the most basic rudimentary law of the Torah, you could not keep. When you visited Abraham, you ate the milk and meat together. And as a result of that, the Almighty gave Moses the second set of tablets because the angels had no rebuttal to God's claim. A very interesting, fascinating midrash. But we could definitely say that the midrash is revealing that this first episode of Abraham feeding the angels, this ensured that the Torah will always be ours forever, despite our flaws, despite our shortcomings. That, in effect, is a cause for us to have the Torah and the episode of Abraham feeding the angels and the fact that we get the detailed menu, they ate non-kosher, that actually ensured the Torah would not be extracted from us and given to the angels. So again, we see the same theme. What seems to be a story Without any success actually yielded tremendous benefits for Abraham and his progeny and his nation that he spawned. We have the 40 years of being fed in the wilderness and we have the Torah being maintained in our hands despite our sins, despite our shortcomings. Let's move on to the next episode, the episode of petitioning God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, of course, Abraham says to God, maybe there's 50 righteous people in the city. Maybe there's 45. Maybe there's 40. Maybe there's 30. Maybe these, maybe there's 20. Maybe there's 10. It's a very long dialogue described in our Parsha. Amidst the dialogue in verse 27 of chapter 18, Abraham apologizes almost to God. And he said, behold now, I desire to speak to my Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Abraham tells God, that I really, it's inappropriate for me to pray because after all, you're God and I'm nothing. I'm dust and I'm ashes. So in the middle of this dialogue, in the middle of this intercession, in the middle of this effort to beseech God to save the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham makes this quote that he is nothing more than dust and ashes. Says the Talmud, the book of Soto, as a result of this utterance, As a result of Abraham saying, I am nothing more than dust and ashes, his children, they merited two mitzvahs, one mitzvah that relates to dust, and one mitzvah that relates to ashes. And they are, namely, the mitzvah of the ashes of the red heifer. When someone's impure, you have to take a red heifer, you burn the red heifer, and those ashes are used to sprinkle upon people that became contaminated by coming in close contact with dead people, and the dust of the sota concoction, when there is a suspected adulteress, when we don't know if she actually committed the sin of adultery, part of the process that's described in the book of Numbers is taking a little bit of dust, mixing it with water, and that is given to the suspected adulteress to drink to clear up whether or not she did, in fact, commit the sin of adultery. So that's what the Talmud reveals to us in the book of Soto, page 17. So we can say quite simply that, yes, maybe Abraham did not manage to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he did manage to extract, so to speak, from God two mitzvahs as a result of his interaction, his prayer on their behalf. I want to maybe suggest that it's not just random that these two mitzvahs were given to Abraham and his descendants as a result of him praying for Sodom and Gomorrah, there is an intimate connection between what Abraham's trying to do and between what these mitzvos do for his descendants, for the Jewish people. Think about it. Abraham, he's told that Sodom and Gomorrah, these two cities, are going to be destroyed. And what does he try to do? He tries to save them from destruction. He wasn't able to save them from destruction. But here the Talmud reveals to us his efforts, his prayers, they succeeded in preventing other kinds of destructions. Think about it. What happens when someone has the ashes of the red heifer? Someone who was previously contaminated, so to speak, with the impurity of close contact with dead people is now pure. And they could walk into the temple, they could bring sacrifices, they could eat sacrifices, etc. What would happen in a world where we did not have this mitzvah? When someone became impure, they would be forever condemned to remain impure. And that would, of course, result in a destruction because the Jewish people would never be able to perpetuate all the mitzvahs that relate to holiness and to the temple. And thus, Abraham tried to save one destruction. His prayer was not successful in saving that destruction but it was successful in saving a different destruction. Similarly, you have a suspected adulteress. We don't know if she sinned and she's an adulteress and she was unfaithful to her husband, or maybe she she wasn't, she was framed, or she was innocent, and it just made made it look or it appeared that she was unfaithful. And we have the potential, again, of a marriage, of a union, potentially a family, being destroyed. So what do we have? We have another mitzvah, the mitzvah, of the dust of the sotah, that is the way to determine whether she was guilty or not and thus save this family from destruction. So again, Abraham was monumentally successful, not immediately in the events that he was dealing with, but later on in unlocking these very special mitzvot that are going to save the Jewish people and future generations from different kinds of destruction. In addition, Abraham is trying to save the whole city of or the region, the metropolitan area of Sodom and Gomorrah. Rashi tells us that there were five different cities that comprise this whole metropolitan area. And the reason why he was looking for 50 righteous people was because 10 people would save each city. And because there's five different cities in the metropolitan area, all you need is 50 righteous people to save the entire region. But Rashi tells us in addition that Abraham had a second goal. There were two goals. There was goal number one to save the entire city or at least certain parts of the city. That's why he goes down from 50 to 40 to 30 to et cetera, all the way down to 10. Maybe he could save one city out out of the metropolitan area. But in addition, Rashi tells us that there was a second aim. There was a second goal that Abraham wanted, even if you could not save the wicked together with the righteous, i.e. you'll have 10 representatives, 10 righteous people that will save the whole city, maybe you could also save the righteous people themselves. Abraham wanted to prevent the destruction of the righteous together with the wicked. Even if there are not 10 righteous men that could save even the wicked, at least Whoever we discover in the city that is righteous, let they themselves be spared. So was Abraham successful or was it a failure? Well, we could say that the first effort, the first aim to try to save even the wicked in the merit of the righteous, that indeed was fruitless. Why? Because the cities were in fact overturned. The wicked people in the city were destroyed. But what about the second effort, the second aim, the second goal of saving the individual tzaddikim, the individual righteous people in the city that Abraham was successful in obtaining? And in fact, his brother-in-law slash nephew, Lot, together with his two daughters, his wife of course, she became the pillar of salt, but Lot, together with his two daughters, they indeed were saved and because they were deemed righteous, they were spared from the destruction. And then we find that there is a whole follow-up to this story. Lot's two daughters, they assume that the whole world's destroyed, and there's only one man left in the world, and that's their father. And in successive nights, they sleep with their father, and they become pregnant. And one of them has a son named Moab, and one of them has a son named Ammon. And we know, if you zoom out and look at Jewish history... Moab, from the tribe, from the family, from the country, from the people of Moab, emerged one of the great heroines of Jewish history, Ruth, Ruth the convert, the great-grandmother of King David, King David, the founder of the Jewish monarchy, the forbearer of Messiah. So if you zoom out of the story, it seems like if you read it, there was a total failure. Abram tried and tried and tried and tried and was unsuccessful, But when you dig a little deeper, you find that not only was he successful, he was tremendously successful because Abraham managed to secure the salvation of Lot, which begot Moab, which begot Ruth, which begot David, which will beget the Messiah. So here's a description of of apparent failure that actually, when we dig a little deeper, we find is a tremendous success because we discover that the Messiah – The Messianic line, the Davidic line, the line of the monarch of the Jewish people is being saved here as a result of Abraham's efforts. What about the episode of the binding of Isaac? End of the Parsha. Again, Abraham's told to offer a son Isaac as a sacrifice and he's not allowed to do it. Again, another failure apparently. And of course we find out without even much digging that this episode was tremendously successful because it earned eternal exculpation for our nation. For example, the Talmud tells us that every year we blow the shofar, the ram's horn, to evoke the episode of the ram that was eventually offered as a sacrifice instead of Isaac, and we're going to earn atonement as a result. Rashi also tells us that the Name, the Hebrew name for the knife that Abraham brought with him is a ma'acheles, which is etymologically related to the word ochel, which means food. Why is the knife of the episode of the Binding of Isaac called ma'acheles? Rashi tells us because the Jewish people for eternity are going to be eating, consuming, the reward of this great deed. So again, apparently on a simple level, seems like it's a failure. On a deeper level, we find out that it was a tremendous success. And because, dear listener, you stayed so long, I'm going to share with you an idea that is a little bit out there, very cabalistic, but I'm going to share it on the condition that I don't get asked any questions about it. So, if you can't keep that deal, you could just stop listening now. And obviously the lesson of all these ideas should be obvious to everyone. You could just turn off the podcast and I'll see you back next week. But if you want to hear a crazy idea or an amazing idea on the condition that you don't ask me any questions about it, I'm going to say it in five, four, three, two, one. Okay. So everyone who is still with us is with us with the explicit intention of not asking me any questions on this idea that I'm about to share. The test of the binding of Isaac, what was the test? The test was essentially Abraham getting conflicting messages from God. Abraham's told on one hand, your progeny will be Isaac, not Ishmael. Your legacy is going to follow Isaac and his children. That's going to spawn the Jewish people. That's one message that Abraham's given in our Parsha. A second message, the next chapter take Isaac, and go slaughter him as a sacrifice. Which one is it? That is the dissonance undergirding the episode of the Binding of Isaac. The Kabbalists, they reveal to us something very intriguing about the Binding of Isaac episode. They tell us that Isaac initially had a female soul, a soul that emanated from Eve, not from Adam. And at the time of the Binding of Isaac episode, that original soul of Isaac that he had previously, that actually left his body and entered the ram. And thus when the ram was slaughtered, it was truly as if Isaac was slaughtered. It was a complete replica, so to speak, of Isaac because now it harbored Isaac's female soul. And as a result of this story, Isaac was given a new soul. This time it was a male soul from the Adam side, not from the Eve side, and he never died, apparently never died, but his soul was converted. His previous female soul left him And went into the ram, and his now new male soul is the soul that he had for the rest of his life. Ergo, think about it. Abraham was worried that Isaac would be killed. And then how is he going to fulfill the pledge that he was told by God, Isaac is going to be your progeny? How how can it be my progeny if I'm going to kill him? And here we find out, again, on this very Kabbalistic level, that actually quite to the contrary. It's not that the episode of the binding of Isaac was a threat to the previous promise that Isaac is going to be a progeny. Quite the contrary. It's only a result of the episode of the binding of Isaac that Isaac indeed can be Abraham's continuity because previously when Isaac harbored the female soul, he was incapable of having any children. And as a result, of the fact that he got a new soul, a male soul. Now Isaac has been upgraded or has been transferred into be someone who's capable of having children, of procreating. He's now fertile, and as a result of that, it can be a fulfillment of God's pledge to Abraham that Isaac is going to be your continuation, he is going to be your heir, he's going to be your progeny. And that's what it turns out that the two instructions, a Isaac's going to be your progeny, B, go kill Isaac, go engage in this binding of Isaac story, were actually complementary because you could not have one without the other. Again, I'm reminding you of our deal. Can ask me questions about this? It's it's too advanced. It's too kabbalistic, but it does again dovetail with the theme that we're discovering in the Parsha, That when you see descriptions of failure of Abraham and you dig a little deeper, you find not only is there mild success, not only is there success, there is tremendous success for Abraham, but Abraham's mission and the Jewish people that Abraham is going to spawn. As to the other events of the Parsha, the episode of Avimelech, kidnapping Sarah, the episode of the banishment of Ishmael, again, apparent failures. I'm leaving it to you, our talented And capable audience to discover how those apparent failures were truly monumentally successful. I think the lesson for us is that when we work hard, we put in our efforts, we try, and it seems like our efforts were for naught. We failed. So like we mentioned at the top, not only are we assured that no effort is in vain, it really matters that we tried. It's counted by God as if we succeeded. It's quite possible that when all is said and done, we'll discover that indeed we were successful beyond our wildest imaginations and expectations. Thank you so much for listening. Have a fantastic Shabbos. My email address is RabbiWolby at gmail.com. My name is Rabbi Akrav Walby. I work for Torch in Houston. If you have not gotten your mitzvah magnets yet, visit our website, torchweb.org. I'll see you. Please God, next week.